Welcome to Entheo Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. Psychedelic science, modern shamanism, neuroscience, new paradigm lifestyles. Get ready to harness the power of visionary states and forge reality into your wildest dreams. Visionaries, greetings from lovely Barcelona, Spain, where decriminalized personal drug use makes podcasting about visionary medicines feel so much easier because here I don't feel like I'm being surveyed and put on a government watch list. This is Lorna Liana here, and I want to welcome you back to episode 22 of Entheonation, which you can access at entheonation.com slash 22. Today we have Rak Razam back on the show with us. Rack is an experiential journalist and frequent lecturer on ayahuasca and the shamanic revival sweeping the West. He is the author of the critically acclaimed book Aya Awakenings, A Shamanic Odyssey, and the producer of a groundbreaking visionary documentary of the same name. In this conversation, we talk about Western shamans and charlatans. Specifically, how do we know who is indeed a qualified sacred tea server and who is a sham? We also talk about the rigorous training that traditional indigenous shamans undergo in order to be even qualified to serve medicine, and we discuss the phenomena of rock star mestizo shamans who are making quite a lucrative business of holding ceremonies around the world and the pitfalls of this trend. We also explore some of the universal safety protocols that ayahuasca facilitators and centers need to have in place and whether or not the ayahuasca community is capable of policing itself. Now, I just had a really great conversation with Carlos Tanner, founder of the Ayahuasca Foundation in Iquitos and creator of Facebook's largest ayahuasca group with 55,000 members who had some pretty strong concerns, and rightly so, about the spread of ayahuasca around the globe and the distribution of this medicine in a way that is not founded in its cultural heritage. Carlos describes ayahuasca as a quote-unquote process, not just a tool or a medicine, and he believes that to serve the medicine in such a way without a deeper understanding of all the elements that go into the healing process, from working with spirits to singing Icaros, is potentially harmful, and I would agree. Ayahuasca Foundation offers Corandero initiation courses that are founded in the Shipibo tradition for facilitators who want formal training in preparing ayahuasca and holding ceremonies. We'll find out more about the work of Carlos Tanner and the Ayahuasca Foundation in a future episode. Before we hop into this interview, I want to give a quick shout out to our amazing iTunes reviewers like Mary Isis, who says... Much respect and gratitude for Lorna for her devotion to sharing the information of many topics regarding plant medicines and other entheogens out there. It's so very important that we get educated on these topics to truly understand the potential that entheogens have for our healing and awakening at this crucial time in our existence on planet Earth. I look forward to many more podcasts. Keep up the great work. 
Thank you so much for the love, Mary. And yes, I do look forward to hosting more visionaries on this podcast for months and years to come. Do not forget to stick around for the medicine music for the soul that I have chosen to feature after this interview. It is an absolutely heartwarming track from my fave artists, Desert Dwellers, featuring Lula Cruza from Argentina, whose music can be described as shamanic electronica. If you would like to receive a free transcript of this episode, it is super easy. Simply text Entheonation, that is E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. Just reply to the SMS with your best email to get access to premium content that's only available to bona fide citizens of Entheonation. If you like this episode, I would so appreciate it if you would take the time to rate and review this show in iTunes, as this will increase Entheonation's visibility in the iTunes marketplace and help get this life-changing information out to the people who need it. Now on to the show. Hello, beautiful visionaries. This is Lorna Liana here for another episode of Entheo Nation. And I'm here today with Rak Razam, who is a world's leading experiential journalist who writes about the emergence of a new cultural paradigm in the 21st century. He's the author of the critically acclaimed book, Aya Awakenings, A Shamanic Odyssey, as well as the companion volume of interviews called The Ayahuasca Sessions. He is also a frequent lecturer on ayahuasca, specifically speaking about the shamanic revival that is sweeping the West. He wrote, produced, and co-directed the groundbreaking new visionary documentary, Aya Awakenings, and he leads ayahuasca retreats in Peru. We will be including all the links to all the work that Rap has been doing around the uh, shamanic revival in our show notes. So Rap, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to talk to you about this phenomenon that I have seen accompany the shamanic revival that's sweeping the West, which is the uh, explosion of Western ayahuasqueros. Thank you, Lorna. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'm going to confess, I'm a little old school, and I've spent a lot of time in the jungle with elder indigenous shamans who have spent a lifetime studying plant medicines, going through rigorous tests in their shamanic training from, you know, avoiding drinking water for an entire year, okay, Mm. to standing in a river all day, and more, more trials of character and knowledge and endurance. And I've heard accounts by trusted and respected sources that some of these indigenous curanderos are capable of curing serious diseases like diabetes and cancer. So when I see this explosion of ayahuasqueros, which I would kind of lump into two general categories, one category being the traveling mestizos that have a fraction of the training that the elders have received, but who are traveling around North America and Europe doing ayahuasca ceremonies and you know charging about $200 per person and making $30,000 per ceremony you know, and just kind of like going on tour like rock stars. So that would be the first group. And the second group would be Westerners that have even less training than these mestizos who I see are serving ayahuasca and charging money for it, sometimes to pay their rent. Now, among the tribes that I've spent time with, there are initiations you have to pass 
before you're even qualified to serve ayahuasca and other plant medicines. And on a more personal note, I believe that if you serve another person ayahuasca, you do take on the responsibility of that person's uh, emotional, spiritual, and psychological well-being. So it's a pretty big responsibility. And so I don't really see these rock star mestizo shamans available to support many of the people that they serve after that ceremony is over because they're on tour. And then I also have some serious misgivings about the capacity of some of these Western ayahuasqueros to appropriately handle a situation if someone that they serve has a psychotic breakdown. So I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about this phenomenon. Well, that's a there's a lot of questions there, Lorna, and they're, they're very good ones and they do cut right to the quick of what is happening in the West as uh, the global shamanic resurgence, as I call it, is rolling out and we're reclaiming this modality of not just ayahuasca, there are many different types of Western neo-shamans working with psilocybin mushrooms, with ayahuasca, with DMT, with uh, so the cactus. It's very true. A lot of the things you said are very true, but I think the devil is also in the details. So number one, you have to look at the power dynamics and what is happening. In many parts of South America, the, the tradition of ayahuasca and plant uh, based shamanism was in danger of dying out even up to a, a decade ago or so until the Westerners came with the, the money and they made this profession of shamanism a, a very dynamic uh, profession that was paid very well because so the path the to be a shaman... Money. So until the Westerners came with money, then they actually contributed to the resurgence of ayahuasca as a tradition in these countries. Is that Did I understand you correctly? Basically, it's the thing that the path of a, to become an ayahuasca shaman takes decades as you were saying you know there is many deprivations and many it's an austere path which is very difficult it requires isolation away from the world it requires a rigorous diet which can be very difficult and many practitioners who are shamans now started off on that path when they were young children they were groomed for many many years by their elder shamans by you know people who saw they had the energetic potentials and it meant basically a very a lifetime of sacrifice and so it was a very hard path that not many of the younger generation were wanting to follow until the Westerners starting to come looking for ayahuasca and bringing the money with them to make it a very uh, tradable commodity. When that happened, many people have jumped on the ayahuasca bandwagon, even in uh, countries like Peru and throughout South America. There are many practitioners practitioners now who are not fully trained shamans uh, or curanderos who are putting up their shingles and offering services with ayahuasca because it is a booming industry. And so that type of energy around the ayahuasca culture and the industry of ayahuasca as a spiritual business that has carried over in the west as well i do believe that there are they, i was told when i first went down to peru many years ago that basically something like to use a random or a generalized statistic something like 10 percent of the people experiencing ayahuasca were seekers instead of perhaps thrill seekers and were people that felt a calling on the path of ayahuasca that they could they wanted to stay with it that they had this type of relationship with ayahuasca where they felt they had the potential to be healers or they had a calling to be a healer and that they wanted to work with the modality of ayahuasca and bring it back to their homes and their communities in the West. And that is a very honorable goal to have. And in doing so, they've had to re-enter the Western civilization and the fact that we have a a money-based economy, not a cooperative economy. It's very much entrenched in capitalism and consumerism. And so the ayahuasca circles, even though they still have a tribal and community approach, as you say, circles in the West are done for money, just like they're now done for money in South America as well. It used to be 
be that Indigenous shaman was told by spirit that they could not refuse to serve someone or to help heal someone who was in need of healing, even if they didn't have any money. It was an energetic exchange could be met. And it wasn't about money. It was about the fact that they're in service to spirit and to healing. But of course, you know, the shaman also needs to have food on the table and to have a, a place to conduct ceremonies in. So there's always been a reciprocation or an understanding of supporting the shaman in supporting the village. Now, what I'm finding the issue is in the West is that ayahuasca is coming in. It's being commodified to a degree. There are many, many, I would say the vast majority of Western practitioners are integral people who are choosing to do the healing because they believe it is of service to the tribe. And they are doing that to the best of their ability within the capitalist structure underground, but they still have the right integrity of approach. They understand the sanctity and the sacredness of the medicine. They want to help people with their healing in ceremonies and introduce them to ayahuasca and help them, essentially. And some people on top of that may be pursuing the money more so than the healing. And that's just a statistical sort of fact within, I guess, culture, within tribes and within people. It's not just happening in the West. That type of attraction to money is also happening in Indigenous cultures as they chase the tourist dollar as well. So basically what we're seeing is incredibly psychoactive medicine that can help reveal and heal and find spirit within yourself is getting turned into a commodity. And this is what happened with every single other sacred substance that the West has encountered over the last few hundred years, all the way back to tobacco, mushrooms. It's like everything that we've encountered that was sacred, we have turned into something profane because we have not had right relationship with it. So I think that this generation of people engaging with the shamanic path, indigenous people take decades. I mean, it's at least 20 years to become a shaman. So we're seeing the first five to 10 years of Western practitioners and it's exponentially growing incredibly fast. And there is a boom and bust cycle happening within this. And I think it will regulate and it will find right balance. And it's a process we're going through, but it's like this is the generation which is bridging the gap and is reconnecting. It's like um, they're kickstarting the shamanic meme and the shamanic energy back into Western culture. And they're having to do it under the control mechanisms of capitalism and working within the system we've got, even though there is the potential within entheogens in general to change the consciousness of individuals within the culture, which may change the culture on mass. So it's a complicated scenario. And a lot of the things you mentioned are very true, but I would say the devil's in the details and that they're hopefully the community will learn enough to self-regulate and to police a lot of the practitioners and make sure that they're integral as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. The devil is in the details because you need to look at the skills, experience, and qualification of the person who is actually serving you that medicine. I think just a history of serving ayahuasca for 10, you know, five, 10 years does is not necessarily the same as receiving dedicated and rigorous instruction from an elder, from some, uh, from a master ayahuasquero on a daily basis. And so that's one of the things that's really missing when I see, you know, some of the Western ayahuasquero serving. Sure, they're serving and holding space, but they're not necessarily increasing their knowledge of the plants unless you were to rely entirely on apprenticeship with the plant teacher herself, you know, which on one hand, I would, I would not discount, you know, one, as one works with plant teacher, as one works with ayahuasca, I truly do believe that you deep 
deepen your knowledge from your direct experience working with the plant spirit, but you don't have, you know, an 80 year old uh, curandero also teaching you the different ways to prepare the plants and, you know, all the subtleties of working with the plants uh, that sometimes you may not, you can only really get in the jungle when you're in the forest ecosystem. That's very true. And for of that, this is what even the shamans themselves say is that ultimately, how did they learn their knowledge originally? It's like the plants told them. It's that the whole practice of preparing for training to be a curandero involves uh, isolation from the higher vibrational energies of the world to achieve the sensitivity to be able to listen and hear the uh, the call of the plants. Like they're always on, but the vibration of our consciousness, especially in the West, when we're we're orientated towards the ego and to more sort of um, sort of beta consciousness levels of action and doing, and we're always on screens and we're always fragmented. Our the level of consciousness we reside upon is not the level of consciousness which can hear the call of nature. And so a lot of the um, the dieters and the isolation of the people training to be curanderos involves stripping themselves back through their diet and through their isolation to be sensitive enough to hear. And then when they do, ultimately the best and the best and single most core teacher is the plants themselves. And in this case, ayahuasca can teach you the ikaros, the songs, and teach you about the other plants. And that is possible for Westerners to get that one-on-one download, but they need to establish a very secure relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca and they need to be dedicated to it. And they are almost forcing themselves into sort of a power lunch where they really have to, it's a very Western way of doing it yet again. It's like, let's cram 20 years worth of uh, preparation and knowledge into best, maybe a year or two's worth of uh, practice in the jungle. And then let's go back and and call ourselves, well, this is the thing, they don't call themselves shamans and they don't call themselves even neo-shamans. They just basically facilitators and practitioners who are usually they say are providing the space they can hold the space they can protect the space from any outside entity intrusion and if we're lucky really that's the question (laughs) to varying degrees and unfortunately you you sometimes only find out that they can't hold that space when something goes wrong when some type of energetic disturbance happens or people might find after a ceremony that they have some unwanted passenger or occurrence that happens and i think basically you have to just like they say with with shamans in the amazon it's like going to your village oh sorry your local suburban doctor the gp general practitioner it's like you can always get a second opinion or you should shop around until you find a doctor that you find is listening to you and you feel like you have rapport with and you're comfortable with and you can trust and open to because there are many different shamans and there are many different western shamanic practitioners and just because they have the medicine and say they can hold a ceremony a it doesn't mean they can and b it doesn't mean that they're the right person for you because it's a very intimate situation you're putting yourself in and you need to be able to trust that you can open up on that level and find the person that works for you Love this episode? You can receive the transcript for free by simply texting Entheonation, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. All you need to do is to reply to the SMS message with your best email address, and we'll send you the transcript and our guide to navigating visionary states for free as a VIP citizen of Entheonation. I 
completely agree with you too, because you know, there, I think there's certain protocols around being a space holder that you know are, need to be universal. For example, screaming at somebody before the ceremony is over is not a good indicator that the person is you know qualified to hold that space or is walking the talk. Because I find that you know if you do step into the role of being a facilitator, in a way, all of a sudden you have to walk your talk uh, because it's such a different level of responsibility. So on one hand, you know, if you're a participant and you're going for healing, it's almost kind of like you can let all your stuff out and you're going through the healing. If you're holding that space, then it's really, uh, you know, upon you to be a person of integrity and to keep your ego in check and to, you know, not get all freaked out about money, you know, and ceremonies, which is the unfortunate thing that I think has really um, the side effect of the commercialization of ayahuasca or commoditization of ayahuasca in the West is the energy of the money exchange has really, you know, it changed a lot of, it changes the energy of the ceremony. I mean, having drunk a lot of medicine in Brazil, for example, where the model is much less shaman-centric and much more community-based, I, you know, almost never have to pay for participating in an ayahuasca ceremony. And the energy is just totally different uh, than having to pay, you know, $200 per, you know, just to participate to one person. In Brazil, for example, you have your churches, you have your tribes, and typically the, you know, within a church, the members pay monthly dues. And then if you're a newcomer, then you can expect to, you know, drink for free or for a marginal fee to cover the cost of toilet paper and candles and things like that. But it's the members that are covering the cost of the production of the ayahuasca and, you know, the operational expenses of the space. But that's very much a different model. So I would very, I would contrast the experience or the feeling that I get when the money element is removed from the ayahuasca experience, which is probably, which is the main reason why I stopped drinking uh, with groups in the West. But I want to, you know, take you to a really important question uh, pertinent to this discussion, which is, okay, so many of these facilitators do have a role in that they are the ones that are opening the door to the ayahuasca experience for people that, you know, simply will never go to the jungle. Okay, so they are serving a valuable role or, or purpose. Now, do you have any advice on assessing the skills, experience, and qualifications of a Western ayahuasca ceremony facilitator so that you know that the person is, you know, a good person for you to drink with. Yeah, I think it's it's a bit of a challenge in many ways because in many parts of the West, ayahuasca ceremonies are still an underground modality. You know, I know that articles in like New York Times and LA Weekly, that it's almost describing it as a, a lifestyle sort of choice and a, a new sort of fad. But essentially, it's always, it's not always um, something that is overt and that you can perhaps Google, you know, and do a background reference check on who the facilitator is and what their experience is. So if you find yourself looking for and finding an in into an ayahuasca community, I think you need to ask the others in that community, you know, about the practitioner. And it is okay. It's definitely, I think, part of the a path of the course to ask questions and to want to know what their experience is. You would want to know where they did train or how they received their, you know, initial experiences with ayahuasca, how long they trained for, what modalities sort of they specialize in, did they do in indigenous, you know, learn in indigenous settings or have they just learned in the West? I guess, do they make the brew themselves? Do they import the brew? What are the other admixture plants in the brew? Do they use toe or anything? 
anything like that, which is can be sort of controversial in brews. Um, is uh, detura, right? That's correct. It's used even by indigenous curanderos, but it's usually very sparsely used because it's a very powerful psychoactive and it can really sort of send people on very powerful journeys a bit too much, really. Um, but most, or even most result in death, so I've heard. It can, but I mean, you know, responsibly used, it is one of the power plants as well, but yes. it's just that it is so powerful that it needs to be used responsibly in the right way. And then even it, not with that, but other things like, are they are they stacking the deck with the brew to put more chikruna or more of the sort of DMT component in there for visionary component? Is it really, is it aligned with healing? Is it there to you know facilitate the healing? Do they know not just how to hold space, but do they have any songs that's one of the key things do they have any of the caros the power songs which aren't just singing to bide the time and to you know fill the space they're actually healing mechanisms in themselves which call in the spiritual uh, vibrational codes of the plants or of the entities that they're calling in to work on behalf of the healing of the patients do they have that level of, of expertise and some levels it's okay if they don't because as i said people are still learning and number one there seems to be an urgency around the globe because people have heard about ayahuasca and they understand it is a very powerful healing agent which does work and so it seems like this generation is really at the minimum holding space for the medicine to do the work in a safe container of ceremony many western practitioners that i know would even have recorded music on which i find it's not the best case scenario but it's like if they're setting up the the mise-en-scene and the 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 elements they need to hold ceremony if they're holding the elements they need to hold ceremony and putting those together they're basically trusting that the medicine itself is going to be doing the healing most of the western practitioners i know don't call themselves shamans because they know they're not really healing it's the medicine of ayahuasca working with the synergy of the patient that is together facilitating the healing in a safe space that the facilitator is holding and making sure is going to be a container for that ceremony. I think one key uh, piece to really, you know, get it, that would be a indicator as to, you know, the level or experience of medicine server in the West is whether or not they're having a interview with you before they serve you, especially around your health uh, conditions and whether you are on any antidepressants that are considered to be SSRIs. So that's definitely, that should go without saying, but it shouldn't go without being said you're right i mean and there are organizations like the ethnobotanical stewardship council the esc which are instigating standardized duty of care uh sort of rules and consensus sort of agreements between practitioners and lodges in peru and just an understanding that people who are doing ayahuasca need to know that there are certain fundamental safety issues and standards like as you said screening process looking at the medical conditions of people wanting to do ayahuasca blood pressure is another issue but Definitely things like SSRIs, which can cross contraindicate with ayahuasca and be quite deadly. People need to know that any of those preconditions and things like that, people need to be screened. And also for psychological evaluation, people really need to be seen like just because they've heard about ayahuasca, it doesn't mean it's actually right for them because it is such a transformative and powerful and full on experience as well as the physical purging. Are people ready to face their demons? Are they ready? Do they really want to be healed or do they expect to passively sit back and treat ayahuasca like a new drug it's like are they ready for that engagement because it's really forcing them to really look at themselves deeply and then what is the the duty of care around integration and aftercare and follow-up and that is a very uh very much needed you know integration as a, as a concept we need to be helping people make sense of these experiences 
make sure that they are able to go back into the world and to lead a life which is integral, having integrated their experiences, like it will change them and they might not be able to go back to the world they left. So what do you suggest a person do if they have a bad experience and the shaman or facilitator who served them the ayahuasca isn't actually available or capable of supporting them? Where should that participant go? You see, this is why it's so valuable to have, as you said, like this, you were saying about the, the churches and how they're more community driven. I see the current uh, hierarchical ceremony style of a centralized shaman or practitioner in the West as just a transition point, because I see the community model, the network sort of centric model is the way forward. And a, a lot of people who originally come in through ceremonies that are led by a single facilitator and stay with the medicine path will eventually find their other tribe mates or the vine tribe people they drink with and their, their little family of people that they do this with. And eventually they will get to a point where it is the best case scenario is to be planting your own ayahuasca, growing your own ayahuasca, making your own brews and establishing a personal relationship with the medicine for your personal use of you and your friends. And in that case, you take the money out of the equation and you have a safety net of other people who you trust and you can open up with and you can go further with. You can support each other spiritually. And so even if you don't have that at the outset, when you go into an unknown spiritual community like an ayahuasca community, whoever you've gone in through or whoever you know, or even people you resonate with in that community, you need to support each other and you need to then be able to follow up outside the ceremony with each other because as you say many of the practitioners many of them are local to their environments and their their towns and cities where they live and they can be contacted but some of them are coming through and traveling to areas where they are facilitating ceremonies and they're gone again and they don't want to be found because you know like in the united states there it's still a schedule one drug even though the udv did was able to have in the supreme court um ayahuasca as a uh the right to use ayahuasca as a religious right they were able to win that, you know, win that right in the Supreme Court. But a lot of these people who are serving ayahuasca are not, you know, members of the UDV. And so they, you know, are using, you know, like disposable cell phones and, uh, you know, going by like anonymous handles. And so it can be very hard to reach them. This is the whole problem of, you know, the 40 plus years of the war on drugs that it hasn't been successful for anyone but the criminals to make money off and to endanger people's lives with, you know, uh, diluted products cut with uh, bad medicines. But even with a good medicine like ayahuasca, it forces people who want to participate and to utilize the healing properties of this sacred medicine. It forces them to use subterfuge and go underground and create conditions which may not be the most optimal for support and safety of people in the long run. And so I think there is a movement of ayahuasca seekers around the world that are not doing this recreationally. They are doing it as a spiritual reconnection for physical healing, for connection to spirit. And as the community grows, we really need to basically, we need to get political, I guess, on some level. We need to standing up for our rights. That this In America, where you have the constitution and the freedom of religion is meant to be a central tenet, this is something such a religious experience. And I think that one of the reasons why it doesn't come up in the courts very often, even though occasionally traveling shamans from South America get busted in the States, they get released and they don't want to face this in the courts because they know this is an archetypal religious freedom issue. And that eventually we are going to have to stand up for our rights because we know, you know, if we don't stand up for our rights, the government takes them away.
way. And this is, it's so primal. It is so primal, a visionary entheogenic experience like ayahuasca, that people who have undergone it have a very inbuilt faith in a burning fire that they know they have had a spiritual experience and they know this is at the heart of religion. And so how can this be illegal if it's done in the right set and setting in the right way? This is a very primal and sacred human experience, which must be, we mustn't even ask them for permission. This is something which is our God-given right. I mean, it is connection to nature and to great spirit. And it's like, it's something which we need to stand up for, else it'd be taken away. So how, uh, so I'd love to ask you, uh, if you were an individual that felt strongly called to hold a medicine space as a facilitator, then what advice would you have for them to prepare themselves for this responsibility, both personally, spiritually, and uh, and legally? Well, in number one, that they have that calling, they presumably have a relationship with ayahuasca that it's not just a delusional construct of their mind, but they're feeling like they have a good reciprocal relationship and they're putting that into practice and they're engaging with dieta and being approaching the medicine in a sacred way. They're learning from it. They're pacing themselves and they're not throwing themselves gung-ho into going, oh my God, I've had, I've been called by ayahuasca and I'm going to go out next week and hold a ceremony. I mean, it's something very sacred and it is such a, as you say, important responsibility. It's like in the West, if you choose to be a doctor and it takes seven, 10 years of medical practice, I mean, you may have knowledge along the way, but you can't legally call yourself a doctor until you've gone through all the right hoops. In this sense, I think we're seeing this generation, they're going through the first few stages of this call to action of the shaman's path and they are facilitating and they are learning and they are growing. And it's still going to be this generation. Again, it's going to take a few years to a decade or so before people mature enough to be able to have the full gamut of um, skill base to be a practitioner. So I would say to people on the path, listen to your heart, listen as integrally as you can, get feedback from your peers. Don't fear it. Like start off on the path, but go slowly, go slowly and sit in ceremony with yourself and then maybe sit in ceremony with a few close friends and hold space for that and build up and don't focus on the money, focus on being in service, focus on how you can help people in your community and maybe organize co-ops and models of uh, cooperation and community support within which you can sidestep the money. You know, you can do it as a, um, you can't be doing it for the money. You've got to be doing it for the community. That's one of the definitions of a shaman is that they are in service of healing for their community. And that's the role they play in a community. And so we can't be falling into the Western trap of commodifying these substances and just charging money for them. We must be practicing the art of healing and it needs to be done in a slow and integral way. Thank you so much for those very wise words. I really appreciate you sharing with us your experience. We're about at the end of our segment here and I'd love to leave you with the last question. What do you think we need to do to evolve ourselves forward and awaken as a human species? Okay, number one, I think I've said earlier in the interview, the really core thing I need we need to do is listen and open our hearts. We need to be heart-centric. As I'm not saying just give away the mind, but the mind needs to be working in synergy and in balance with the heart. Nature gave us an amazing repertoire of abilities. We have the imagination, we have the intellect, we have the intuition, we have the ego, we have all these capacities of the mind, and then we have the heart. And it's no use just using one hemisphere of the brain to go out and see the world and to think it's something we can conquer and we can take resources from and we can distance ourselves from. And we have both an ecological crisis and a societal crisis we're facing on planet Earth at the moment. And it's not going away. In fact, it seems to be exponentially getting worse. In times of crisis, we also have an opportunity to 
change and to transform. And I believe that the plants like ayahuasca and the entheogens coming back into the Western understanding precisely at this time because they are needed. There are many other pathways to self-awareness and awakening, but I don't think we necessarily have time on the planet. We need to plug in directly to the mainframe and to remember what right relationship is. And you can't just remember intellectually that right relationship. It's like falling in love. You need to be open. You can describe love to someone and they can understand it, but to feel it is another thing entirely. So what these plants are doing is they're healing us and they're cleansing our bodies and they're not the answer. They're just the doorway that they're asking us to walk through. They're asking us to go back to the garden, to go back to nature with our Western understanding and our mind, but to have it in service and in sort of in right balance with our hearts, to be able to feel nature, to be able to listen to nature, to be able to work with nature, to be a better species, to be a species in service to the greater whole and to fully awaken. Thank you so much, Rap. How can we best stay in touch with you? You can find me at raprazam.com. That's R-A-K-R-A-Z-A-M.com or Aya, A-Y-A hyphen awakenings.com. And uh, I'm looking for forward to uh, meeting you all. I am doing these regular ayahuasca awakenings retreats down in Peru every three months or so. And you can find information about that on the website, Ayah Awakenings. And I look forward to, well, yeah, to being part of this global shamanic resurgence. I look forward to one day meeting you in person too, Rack. Maybe that'll happen in Peru. <laughs> I would love to, Lon. That'd be awesome. Let's, yeah, or I'll, take, I'll take you to Brazil. How's that? Join me on a trip to the Brazilian Amazon and I'll show you that what's going on on the other side of the Andes. It's amazing. That sounds like a date. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Thanks, Lola. That was Rak Razam, author of the book Aya Awakenings, A Shamanic Odyssey, and the producer of the groundbreaking visionary documentary Aya Awakenings. My takeaway from this conversation is that there is indeed a place in the global ayahuasca community for Western tea servers particularly facilitators who have training in both psychology as well as curanderismo. But because ayahuasca can inspire messianistic tendencies, I personally do not believe that everyone who feels strongly inspired to pour medicine should. If that call is accompanied by years of training, dedication, and hard work, that's another thing. So I'm curious to know your thoughts. Do you feel that somebody who experiences a call, if you will, after their profound ayahuasca ceremony to start serving medicine and holding ceremonies should? Feel free to visit our show notes at entheonation.com slash 22 and leave your comments. I will now leave you with Warm Desert Sands, a Lula Cruza remix by Desert Dwellers from their album, The Great Mystery Remixes, Part 2. Traigo a este espacio la presencia de la luz, respirando hacia el cielo. 